Good morning, Hickory family. It is my honor uh, to be with you this morning, continuing a message series that we began a couple of weeks ago on the book of James, where we are taking a verse-by-verse, word-by-word account of the five chapters from Pastor James to his Jerusalem church. But before we jump into the verses we're going to look at this morning, beginning in chapter 2, I have a question I want to ask each and every one of you. And that question is this. Y'all have any favorites? Does anyone here have favorites? I think most of us have favorites. If you're a, a parent of more than one child and they're near you, don't be looking at them right now. Just, just keep them guessing and let them think that they're your, they're your favorite. I think most of us have favorite people. Here is a picture of my favorite people. This is my wife, Suzanne, who I think is one of the wisest individuals I know, and she's just a cutie patootie to boot. And next to her is my son, Sam, who I think is one of the most talented artists I know. It's just in him, and it has to come out of him. He draws amazing creations almost every day. And on the other side of her is my daughter, Olivia, who I happen to think is one of the kindest people I know. She's got a style and a smile all her own. These are my favorite people. Most of us have favorite people, folks we would want to spend time with if we could, all the time, right? Some of us are blessed not just to have favorite people, but to be somebody's favorite person. Here's a picture I like to keep in my phone, and I have been known on occasion to send this picture to my sister when I've had opportunities to do something nice for my mother. You know, call her up, see how she's doing. When I'm up in New York, take her out to lunch, fix something that's broken, take her to a doctor's appointment. I consult the brother-sister handbook, and you know what it says? Send your sister a picture of a gold star with your name on letting her know that your mom has a favorite, and guess what? Hey, I didn't write the handbook. I just run the plays, you know? So. Or maybe you have a favorite like this. Maybe your favorite is a favorite sports team like the Dallas Cowboys. Come on. Come on. Can I get a witness from the congregation? Come on. There are a lot of people in this church that love the Cowboys. And then, well, there's some who... You know, hate is such a strong word. And we're in church. I don't, I don't like to use such vulgar language. So, so maybe I'll just say there's folks who have some, some strong negative emotion there. Now, I just want to encourage those of you in that category that as the picture indicates, they are America's team. And I can't, I can't point to the exact verses, but I, I kind of have a good authority. God really loves the So if you love your country, you love your creator. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Cowboys, cowboys. Now, anyway, moving right along. Chapter 2. James is talking about favoritism, not these kinds of favoritisms. And if people don't settle down, I'm leaving that slide up the whole sermon. James has a lot to say. And if you've been with us over the first two weeks, you've heard Pastor Justin talk to us about faith and talk to us from the voice of James. James brings it, doesn't he? That's why I wanted to insert some levity because James just kind of gets us right between the eyes. He comes into our kitchen with a lot of bold and sober warnings with some real wisdom. I've heard James, the book of James be referred to as Proverbs for the New Testament. He teaches us how to live and he does it unambiguously. There's, There's a lot of great themes in the book of James and One of the main ones, and you'll hear Pastor Justin next week unpack perhaps one of his most famous verses, that that faith without works 
is dead. James is all about walking your talk. He's all about the results of faith, that, that the internal transformation should be evident in our words, in our actions. If it's not, it's a, it's a dead faith. We don't want a, a dead faith. So he hits us with a, a lot of bold and sober warnings, and he certainly does in what we're going to look at today. But I want us to receive these warnings with a particular perspective. And that perspective is this. Every warning from God is an invitation to better. Every warning from God is an invitation to better, greater, deeper, higher. Jesus came to give us life and life in abundance, that, that better life, that, that warning from a loving Abba Father that says, I got, I got better for you. I want us to hear those words from that perspective. Remember, James is a pastor, and he's speaking to the Jerusalem church. This is really not that long after Jesus died. James, the book of James is one of the oldest books in the New Testament, written before the Gospels even. This is the new church. This is the Jerusalem church. And, and because Jesus offered his free invitation to all, the super-religious elite and the non-religious, the, the rich and the poor, the Jew and the Gentile, that's what made up the early church. And James is... He's talking to his Jerusalem church, and he knows that there are folks in there who are just not acting very loving towards each other, looking down their nose at each other. And James is saying, we don't have the freedom as followers of Christ to prejudge, to act with prejudice. He's talking to us today about partiality, and he's speaking to his early church, and he's saying the Jew that goes out of his way adds hours or days to his journey so he can avoid Samaria, avoid Gentile. We don't have the freedom to do that. How practical, how timeless is the word of God that our, our world today seems to be going in that divided direction. He's saying to us that partiality is sin and that it directly exposes all of us 2,000 years later, in the 21st century. Gives us no wiggle room, no, no way to preface and to uh, rationalize our behavior towards division. He's, he's saying to us that those of us who come to church every Sunday and who pray prayers and who sing songs about God's love for us and God's love from us, but yet in small and big ways are not acting lovingly towards each other. When we pay attention to those who have, typically referred to as favoritism, and we are unmoved by those who have not, typically referred to as discrimination. And we fail to grasp what the gospel message is all about, that God so loved the world, that while we were still sinners and didn't give a wit about him, he loved us. And he loved us so much that he gave us his very best, his one and only, Jesus, who humbled himself to step out of heaven, to empty himself of himself, for you, to enter into our world as a babe, born to a virgin, to enter into our muck and our mire, to teach us, to heal us, to walk with us, to enter into relationship with us with a perfect amount of truth and of love, and then to lay down his life for you and for me. Nobody took it, not just to pay for our sins, but the Bible says to become sin. For you, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, separated from God. For the first time, Jesus willingly, gladly did that 
for you so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. And then just as he said he would on the third day, rose again. God so loved the world that whosoever, I love this word, whosoever, we'll go to the next one, whosoever. This is a word we don't use very often. It's a three words put together as one. And it means God gave his very best for all of us. Uh, first, Second Peter tells us that God is patient with all, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone, all the whosoevers to come to repentance. So it is that backdrop that we begin our time here in chapter 2 in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. It says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the VIP place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, basically just get out of sight. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This flies in the face of the way the world is moving. This is so timeless for our world today. This puts the ball in our court. And the way the world is going, I would say, is not a personal responsibility direction, not a ball in our court direction. It's actually in a group identity perspective. I want to read a quote for you from Pastor Tony Evans that I think kind of illuminates that and will get us kind of going in the right direction. And I want to ask you if you'd be so, so willing to close your eyes and allow him, try to erase the whiteboard in your mind uh, and allow this quote from Tony Evans to just paint a picture for you uh, for what we're going to talk about today. Pastor Tony Evans said this, if you want a better world, composed of better nations, inhabited by better states, filled with better counties, made up of better cities, comprised of better neighborhoods, illuminated by better churches, populated by better families, then you have to start by becoming a better person. James is all about the decisions that we make, the actions that we take, the walk matching our talk. Pastor Evans' quote just kind of puts it all on personal responsibility. That's what Jesus wants. He wants a relationship with us. He wants to guide us. He wants to encourage us in the consequences of our actions, in the best decisions. Every warning is an invitation to better. This flies in the face of the way the world is moving. The world is moving in a group identity perspective. The world is beginning to think more and more and more that the issues and problems of this world and of this country are so big that how can one person on their own begin to tackle them? How can one person make any real change when the problems are so big? So you know what we do? We end up connecting with people in groups, like-minded people. On the face of it, that sounds really effective, right? Many hands make light work. Social media is the perfect storm for this. We can scroll through our feeds, we can review posts, we can see 
basic 30,000 foot view descriptives about people. And then the tendency is, and unfortunately the temptation is, to assign people into groups. They're in the good group or the bad group, the right group or the wrong group, the in group or the out group. And we do that in this scrolling surface level processing, uh, uh, absorbing, distilling of those base descriptives. And we are quick to assign people into groups. At the very least, that causes division. At the very worst, we run into that temptation of saying, I'm going to fill in my blanks. I learned a few things about the person. I signed them into the group. And I'm going to close the book on that person. I know everything I need to know about them. I'm going to put the book up on the shelf and let the book collect dust because they're not in the right group, ostensibly canceling somebody. We can do that. This, this feeds right very well from what Pastor Justin talked to us about last week, about being slow to speak right, and quick to listen, slow to become angry. That denotes time. That denotes a process. That denotes intentionality. This is the temptation that a lot of us fall into, to just learn the basics about a few descriptives about someone and filling in the blanks and writing the scripts and saying, are they with me or are they against me? James is speaking directly to that. And again, he's speaking to his church that we're dealing with this level of division. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit 2,000 years later, he's speaking to us in a timeless way, in a culture that is becoming more and more deeply divided. Those first four verses we looked at, they came alive for me. This is, again, Pastor James talking to believers in the context of a church. This came alive to me one day when I came to church. I drove into church just like I had done a million times before. Came into the building, got greeted by the guest services team, chatted with them for a few minutes. In our church with a big cafe, coffee bar. So, of course, being a good Christian, loving coffee, I came up, put my drink order in, saw the cups all lined up. I saw I was at the end. So it was before the service, and I thought, hey, let me go see if I can find a staff member. I wasn't serving that day, but let's go see if they had any holes, uh, anybody calling sick I could help out. So I get into the church, and we had two doors on either side of the, of the church sanctuary. So I walked in one of them, and I saw a staff member, and I started walking towards them, give them a hug, and see if uh, they had any needs, any volunteer needs I could help with. And he started walking towards me, and I started walking towards him. And as he got a little closer, I could see his expression change. He had a little extra spring in his step. His eyes got big. His eyebrows went up. And I didn't have time to process why that was happening, but I was going up to give him a hug, and I don't really know what happened. He just kind of went through. It was a full matrix thing. It was just like, shoo. And all of a sudden, I'm like, what happened? As I finished hugging the air, I turn around and go, where did he go? He made a beeline for the door that I had just entered a few moments ago and and greeted a couple, a man and a woman, who had entered and uh, started introducing himself and was really focused and had a lot of energy and started telling them about the church. And then all of a sudden, the lead pastor appeared with his wife. I don't even know where they came from, but now they're there and they're making the introductions and and, uh, starting to answer questions and give the history of the church. And pretty soon, there's a a pretty decent-sized group around them. And and I'm going, somebody, do you know who they are? I I I couldn't recognize, who are they? Why Why are we spending so much focus on them? I don't know. So church came, church went. Afterwards, I found somebody. I said, did you know who that person was that they were given the VIP treatment to? They 
asked him. I could tell the couple was getting a little uncomfortable. They offered to move him down to the front row, give him the prime seating. They're like, yeah, we're, we're good right here. They politely declined. They ended up sitting in the back. Found out from somebody later, this was uh, an NBA basketball player and his wife came to our church. Uh, normally, I think NBA basketball player, I think six five, seven foot. I'm looking up like that. This guy was my height. He's a point guard. But he's a, a really good basketball player, first-round draft pick. In fact, was on the cover of Sports Illustrated as a high school senior. He was one of the few who made the leap from high school to the NBA. He was that good. And so, you know, now I understood a little bit more. I'm like, what, what, what happened? Um, this was, now listen, don't mishear me. I think it was great that that guy and his wife were there. And Jesus loves them, wants a close personal relationship with them, wants their marriage to be as strong as it can be. If they have kids, wants them to be the best parents they could be. Um, this was the one and only time they came to our church. And I've been at that church, I was at that church for a long time. This was the only time we, I saw such a red carpet VIP treatment for anyone as a first-time guest. When we, I think this is what James is, is telling us, when we step to those who have plenty, at the very least, we may miss opportunities to meet the needs of others that are all around us. There were other first-time guests that day that didn't receive that kind of attention and that VIP treatment. And at the very worst, James is telling us that we open the door to being, making distinctions among ourselves, good, bad, right, wrong, in, out, and, and saying, Something like, you know, hey, what a first-round, multi-millionaire, eight-figure contract NBA player could do for our church budget, right? I mean, you know, what, what that kind of contribution could do to some of the future growth plans we have. You know, what kind of status would this give our church to be able to say, hey, we have an NBA player as part of our church family, you know? That, that's what James is saying. At the very least, we're going to miss opportunities to see the real need that's all around us. At the very worst, we're going to become... Little mini judges making distinctions, as James says, with, with evil intentions. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29 says this, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you of noble birth. Not many of you multimillionaire first-round NBA basketball players. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. When we show partiality, when we show favoritism, when we discriminate one over the other, we dishonor God, who loves all, who knows all, who died for all wants a relationship with all. If we need any further proof that God shows no partiality, all we need to do is look in the mirror. We were not called by name because we're all that in a bag of chips, because we're some definition of awesomeness. So the idea that somebody else should fit into our groups, should fit into our definition of awesome, they're, 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 they're lined up the way I am lined up either because they're similar to me or because I want more of what they have. And we have that selfish, kind of conditional approach to somebody. That is actually anti-grace. 
That is actually anti-gospel. And we, when we do that, we step out from under God's covering. We, we become our own little mini-gods, making distinctions with evil intentions. Titus 3.5 says this, He saved us not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It is this absolutely countercultural approach that James is honing in on with his church and about 2,000 years later with us. And make no mistake about it, this is a countercultural perspective. The culture says it's what you have that denotes your worth, your status. In the kingdom of God, it's, it's who you have. And it's what he's already done for you. Verses 5, 6, and 7, James says this, Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? God chose the poor, James says. What does that mean? Well, I think it's a, an oversimplification to just limit the answer to material poor, right? Uh, dollars and cents. Because if we do that, we might reduce it down to this idea that poor equals righteous and are going to heaven and the rich equally unrighteous and are going to hell. That's not what James is saying here at all. The poor can become as bitter in their circumstances as the rich can become prideful in there. So that's not what James is saying. James is also not saying, let's, let's now, because we've learned this lesson, take our favoritism off of the multimillionaire NBA player and put it onto the poor or put it onto the other first-time guests. Let's, let's take our par- partiality off of the rich and put it onto the poor. That's not what's, what James is saying either. James is saying, show no partiality. Show no favoritism. Love as I love. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says it like this. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. In the times of Jesus, it was the elite. It was the Pharisees, the keepers of the law, the highest of the social and spiritual standings that tried to continually trap and trick Jesus. The Gospel of Mark tells us it was the poor, the the common people, the common folk who received Jesus and who heard him and who heard him gladly. So does it have to do with poor and possessions? Yes, of course. Blessed are the poor. When you have little and you need God to provide to you even your basic needs, you're going to be more apt to see God, hear God, recognize his goodness, worship him, and, and acknowledge his provision. But it also has to do with a spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It has to do with a perspective, a deep awareness that's irrespective of your bank account, but, but contains a, a meekness, a humility that says, I need him. It all comes from him. I am dependent upon him, and I acknowledge his goodness in the big moments and in the small moments as well. You know, recently my wife had a conversation with one of the women in the church who their family just had a baby. And I know we've, we've had so many baby dedications, and it is awesome. Got a couple more scheduled for the fall. But she was connecting with this woman 
about making a meal and about getting that meal to her. And in that conversation, the woman remarked with great detail and great specificity about the meal that we had made for her several years ago when they had their first child, when we first came down to Delaware. And Suzanne's remarking that to me, and I'm like, man, that's amazing. Like, I'm struggling to remember what we had for dinner last night, and this is three, four years ago. And then as we talked a little bit more, we're like, wait a minute. Don't you remember, I mean, not last night, not a few weeks ago, but 15 years ago when Olivia was born? And she's like, yeah, homemade sofrito. And I'm like, that's right. We were like, some of you are walking, we had just brought Olivia home from the hospital. And we were, let me just say in retrospect, we were spoiled. There's five and a half years between Sam and Olivia, and we got back into some rhythms, right? And they have to do with sleep. And then all of a sudden, you know, this glorious, beautiful miracle of a baby comes into our home, and it just takes all of our rhythms and family sleep patterns and throws them up in the air. And they all come down in little places. And you spend the next several days trying to grab the pieces of the puzzle and put the puzzle back so that there's some normalcy, so things make sense. We were, and like some of you are probably currently with new kids, we were walking around like the walking dead. I mean, we were zombies. We didn't know what time of day it was or what day it was or, heck, what our names were. And then all of a sudden, we got a knock on the door. And we opened the door as this awesome couple from our church, and they're holding a little platter of food. And it smelled amazing. This woman who's from Puerto Rico said, it's not much. It's just some chicken and rice, but I did make it with our family recipe, homemade sofrito. And I'm like, oh. That's what smells so good. Oh my gosh. And so we chatted a little bit and then we, took, we, th- we thanked them for the meal. And we took it in and it was like, it's like how God is. It was the perfect situation. We had just put Olivia down to sleep. Sam had already eaten. And Suzanne and I take this platter of chicken and rice and homemade sofrito and we sit it at the table. We open it up. It smelled amazing and tasted even better. But here's the kicker. We got to reestablish the rhythm in our home. We got to actually have a conversation for an hour, look in each other's eyes, you know, like be husband and wife, be human uh, with all of our sleep deprivation, and enjoy amazing food. We got to laugh. That's how sweet God is. When you are dependent upon him, it, it can do with your material wealth, but it has to do also with a spirit a perspective that says, I need you, Lord. And he says in return, I love you. I love you so much. I still remember we ate that platter like we were going to jail. <laughs> and we got, this, we got down to the little piece left of chicken and rice. And I still remember this. I looked at Suzanne and she looked at me and she said, I passed this bowling ball. Don't even think about it. I'm like, okay, all right, okay. James is talking to believers here, right? Pastor James is talking to believers who have already received Christ, who have already found freedom in him. It's for freedom's sake that Christ died, to set us free. Pastor James is telling them, and 2,000 years later, he's telling us, don't go back. Don't go back to the weight of the world. Don't go back to the anxiety and the expectations of the world Don't go back. When we look to the world for significance, 
When we cozy up to the culture for happiness, a world that mocks Jesus, James is telling us, blasphemes his holy name, puts down faith in Christ and the Bible and church, we dishonor the poor, our internal brothers and sisters, and we miss opportunities to walk out one of James's main themes, to walk our talk, to show our faith, to encourage others closer to him. James is saying, don't go back. Don't go back to bondage. It's free, for freedom's sake that Christ died. There is a psychological element to the abused where folks sometimes feel this overwhelming urge to go back. We see that in the children of Israel, wanting to go back literally to bondage and slavery in Egypt. Isaac mentioned the Hoving Home, our national partner. I see that in my work there. I get to serve on the board of directors. It's a Christian nonprofit that for 55 years has helped women beat addiction to the tune of almost an 80% success rate. And they do it just by giving them the love of Jesus. But that 20% we're always concerned with. And it used to be a lot bigger. And we used to see women who achieve sobriety and then be faced with that fork in the road. The unknown about living a life in the future, sober, is overwhelmingly, I'm going to go back. Go back to the zip codes. Go back to the relationships. And unfortunately for some, go back to those unhealthy patterns and choices. So we've worked, I'll just let you know, for the last five years, giving women options and opportunities so that they don't have to go back. In everything James is writing, he knows that how we treat others, particularly those in need, is foundational to our faith. So James is giving us another heart-level warning. And it's, I think it's this in the form of a question. Do we want to be accepted by the world or honoring to God? Do we want to be accepted by the world or honoring to God? What James is saying is you and I are the counterculture. We are the counterculture in a world that mocks Jesus, in a world that puts down faith, thinks of it as just a shortcut for thinking. Follow evidence, follow science. This is the division that exists in this world, and we should not run from that distinction. If you've been marginalized because of your faith in Jesus Christ, consider it an honor. Consider it a blessing. That's a distinction that we should not run from. We should embrace. Because when we look to cozy up to the world and not follow the encouragement of James, we either as individuals, because we will be influenced by something, we will be influenced by someone, we end up leaving the church. The renewal of our minds, the encouragement and accountability of the local expression of his church. As the church collective, when we look to step to the culture too much, we see this in some examples, we, we become more focused on being a cool and hip church. We, we become more interested in, in, in need to be seen as a church that's in touch with the culture as opposed to seeing the need that's all around us, being the church, not being the cool church, but being the church, the hands and feet of Jesus. To love as he loves. Do you want to be accepted by the world or honoring to God? I have a good friend. He's Jewish. 
good, from high school. High school buddy of mine was in, a, in my wedding party, in Susanna and my wedding party. And a few years after we got married, he met a woman, Orthodox Jewish woman, and he got married. And we were uh, fortunate enough to be invited to that wedding. That wedding is the largest wedding I have ever been to. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, many flown in from Israel. This woman, her family came from a long and prestigious rabbinical line. And so, largest wedding, and, and in the reception, hundreds of tables, 99.9% of them seated Jewish people. And there was one Gentile table. Suzanne and I are seated with six other folks. I think I was sitting next to my high school buddy named Christian. Uh, blonde hair, blue eye. This, this was the Gentile table, right? And so we sat for a lot of the reception, and I, I just absorbed what I experienced. It was, uh, particularly at, at the reception, um, unique. Uh, it, it kind of resembled, to some degree, a Broadway play. Uh, there, were, there were costume changes. Uh, there were some scene changes. There were traditions and rituals that were walked out. There was a significance to, uh, to dress to material, to coverings, to knotted fringes. And so some months after his wedding, I connected with him and I asked him to share with me a little bit about the significance of what I saw, the the uniqueness of how people were dressed. And, And what he said to me stuck with me. And so I offer it to you today. He said, it is very different, the manners of dress, the significance of the material. It is very different from the culture. And it is those differences, Andy, that we celebrate because it is those differences that set us apart. It is the daily reminder for us that we are of God and that God is above us. I love that. I love that. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are not set apart because of our outward appearance, material of dress, head coverings, none of that. It's by receiving the free invitation that Christ paid for on the cross for you and for me. That's what sets us apart as the counterculture. Verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, James says this, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, then you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have committed, you have become a transgressor of the law. James here is putting partiality on the same level as murder and adultery. And I think it's important to hear the passion behind his words, the firsthand lived experience. As, as Justin pointed out to us in chapter one, you know, James is the half-brother of Jesus. And the Gospels tell us that James, along with his siblings, initially didn't believe Jesus. The Gospels tell us that they mocked him. They, they uh, thought he was a liar. Um, they they uh, thought he was out of his mind, actually. Um, and so hear these words. What James is saying is, don't make the same mistake I did. Jesus was actually there, like right next to me, like in my family. And I prejudged him. That's what prejudice is. Prejudice is prejudging. He's just Jesus. And when we show partiality, that's what happens to us. We start to be able to not hear Jesus, not see Jesus 
in our life, not follow his counsel and his guide. James is saying, don't make the same mistake I did. Don't prejudge. It will prevent you from seeing Jesus. Final verses we're going to look at today in 12 and 13. James illuminates how practical the Bible is. When he says, you know, it says, don't show partiality. Don't show favoritism. Now, what is, what is it that we do? James gives us the practical answer to that. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under that law of liberty. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? Whoever needs you the most. That is your neighbor. We learn that from the Good Samaritan parable. I encourage you, if you don't know that parable, read it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now remember, every warning is an invitation to better. And here is the warning. And it should pull us up short. It is bold and it is sober. Here it is. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. If we're just making thin 30,000 foot decisions about people in 2022, the 21st century, if we're just saying, ah, that's what they tweeted five years ago, and we fill in all the rest of the blanks, and we write all the rest of the scripts, and with a couple of taps on our thumb, we cancel them. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy, but every warning is an invitation to better, and here is the better. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy changes everything. Mercy changes everything. Mercy changes the way that you talk to and about others. Mercy changes the way you talk to and about others. When the spotlight's on and there's a crowd around and when you're alone with a person and no one's around, mercy changes the way you talk to and about others. Mercy changes the way you talk to and about others online. You know, mercy changes before you click send. Mercy changes before you post. I just got to give them a piece of my mind. I got to get something off my chest and these thumbs are going to tap like crazy. I got to let them know what they don't know because I know and they don't. Mercy changes the way you talk to and about others. Mercy changes the way you make your plans. We're going to talk in a few weeks about the gift of today, pulling the camera lens back and seeing the gift that God gives you and I every day, the gift of today. Mercy changes the way you deal with trials and hardships. In this world, there are many trials and hardships, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. We've all walked through it. Some are walking through it right now. For some, it's a, it's a snapshot moment in time of trial, of loss, of suffering, of abuse. Some of us, it's just every day. The pangs are there. The, the, the residue is there. The consequences are there. That's why here at Hickory Ridge, we want to be the local expression of his church where people can trust again, 
where we can receive God's favor in your life to encourage you that we all need him, that we're all dependent upon him, that none of us have the corner market on his mercy, that you can be vulnerable again, that you can open yourself up to relationship again. You know, the the way that Jesus modeled it, he could have done anything. He could have spoken to us in any way. He chose to empty himself of himself and come and enter into a relationship with us. Not with a finger wag and a bullseye on your face, but with the perfect measure of truth and love. To step into our muck and our mire in relationship. That's the kind of church we want, that we can have relationship, learn together, grow together, laugh together, hold each other accountable together. Mercy changes your relationship to Scripture. Man, there's a ton of people here who went to Bible college. That's awesome. The other side of that coin is that there's a susceptibility to say, I've heard it all. I know all the characters. I've heard all the stories. And so I'm going to share what I know about what I learned. Mercy changes getting in there. Changing you, as Justin talked about last week, from the inside out. Make no mistake about it. This puts the culture on its head. This is upside down to the way the world is wired. Mercy changes your approach to money. Mercy has its way with your pride. Mercy changes your attitude towards the poor. Mercy changes how you deal with temptation. You know, before you click send, speak to me, Lord. Guide me. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Here's some quick descriptives about me. It's stuff you can learn just by looking at me, some of them. Some of them a quick online thing. Go to my Facebook, go to my Instagram, go to my LinkedIn, and you can learn these things about me. I am male. I am white. I am Christian. I am American. And I am Ivy League educated. (laughs) These things could serve as a starting point. Just if you've never met me, or if you just Googled me online, you could start to get a picture. But it's a jumping off point. It should be a jumping off point to getting to know Andy Salino. Getting to know how I think, how I prioritize. Getting to know my heart getting to know my, my temperament, my personality, entering into potentially relationship with me. What James is speaking to in our 21st century reality is that oftentimes those base level descriptives, those simple descriptives of me don't serve as the beginning A lot of times they serve to divide. And sadly for too many, they serve as the end of any potential of getting to know me. Because those scripts are written, those definitions are assigned. He's a male, he must be part of the patriarchy. He's white, 
must mean he's inherently racist. He may not know he's racist, but he's racist. He's American? It must mean he's selfish. Taking advantage of an economic system to just selfishly and self-centeredly build wealth for himself. He's Christian? Must mean he's a hypocrite, right? Just wanting to shove his faith down the throats of others. He's Ivy League educated. Well, that's the very essence of privilege. I bet his daddy got him into that university. Sadly, too often, we don't start at the beginning and move to the things that Justin talked about last week that denote a process, denote a commitment, denote intentionality, denote desiring a relationship to get to know somebody. We analyze with base level descriptives and we fill in the blanks and we close the binding of the book on people and we cancel them. And that's what James was speaking to 2,000 years ago and that's by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what we need to deal with today. There's no wiggle room. To some degree, this is all of us. When I say those people, what do you think? If you're young, do you think, oh, old people, they don't know anything. The world's passed them by. Technology advances. They're living in a bygone age. If you're an older person, do you say the same thing about young people? They don't know anything. They haven't earned anything. They haven't rolled up their sleeves or paid their dues. They don't know anything. Who is it? Heck, we're, we're Delawareans. It's the summer. <laughs> we, we see a bunch of different license plates on the road. Who are those people? Right? To some degree, this is all of us. This is all of us. And this should wreck us. As a follower of Jesus Christ, this should mess us up in a really, really good way. The, the lukewarm Christian says, I haven't murdered anyone, Andy. I haven't committed adultery. It doesn't have anything to do with me. Thank you. Check. Jesus has a lot to say about the lukewarm Christian. James is saying, if you have looked down your nose at anyone, if you've written that script, if you've filled in that blank, knowing only a handful of things about somebody and you have assigned meaning to the rest so that you don't have to extend yourself, so that you don't have to do some of the things Justin talked about last week. Slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry. It's much more easy to just cancel. When there's means on the internet, whenever an event happens in the country or the president makes a major speech, or the Supreme Court decides a case, when there's memes on the internet that say, well, I put my two cents in and cleaned out my Facebook friends, make no mistake about it, that's the way the world is moving, to make these thin and superficial and 30,000 foot view decisions about people. To show partiality, James is saying that sin, judgment is without mercy for the one who shows no mercy. Ouch. But every warning from God is an invitation to better. Mercy changes everything. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what the world says. 
right? You're in the good group or the bad group, the in group or the out group. You're either with me or against me. You know what God says? Colossians 3.11 tells us, in this new life, one's nationality or race or education or social position is unimportant. If you were sitting there when I said I'm Ivy League educated and you went, you're right. Unimportant. Such things mean nothing. Whether a person has Christ is what matters. And he is equally available to all. We are going to have some prayer partners up here. If the Holy Spirit's been bringing somebody or some groups of bodies to your mind. Later in James, it says, confess one to another so that you may be healed. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Don't go back into bondage. Don't go back to the slavery, anxiety, and weight of the world. Walk with Jesus. If you're here today and maybe the homemade sofrito story gave you a better, clearer understanding of God's mercy in your life, You know, sometimes I'm up here praying with people and it's for real needs and I'm honored to do it. But if you've got a a story about God's mercy in your life, come down here. Let's rejoice together. Share it. Mourn with those who are mourning. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. But come. Let us worship him now.